Ladies and gents, Tyson Popplestone here. Relax Running Podcast is what you're listening to. I've got my great mate, Adam Diddick, on the show today. Adam's uh, he's my friend from way back. Met him in 2006 when I moved to Adelaide after year 12. He was my groomsman at my wedding. Um, since then, he's just turned into a bit of a rock star coach. He's the coach of Jess Trengove, or, or Jess Stenson now. He's the coach of Olympic gold medalist Jared Talent. Uh, he's uh, he's an all-round switched-on unit when it comes to the subject of, of running. And I wanted to pick his brain today, especially on the subject of marathon running, because I'm running a couple next year. And I just wanted to know, hey, how do you prepare someone like Jess to run so well over the marathon? So I left with pearls of wisdom. I know you will too. So if you or someone you know is running a marathon, hey, ask you to share this with them. I'm sure it'll be really valuable to them. I wanted to let you know also that Relaxed Running has released their AFL running program so many coaches and footballers are looking for ways to improve their running performance on the game it's the foundation of the game so it makes a lot of sense so we've put together a, an online membership which you can find at relaxrunning.com slash afl and it has training programs for your christmas break your pre-season um their position specific there's also uh, technique analysis and there's an elite insight section where we catch up with footballers and runners from all around australia to pick their brain on how to improve this part of our game. So uh, check it out. I think you'll like it. If you know any footballers, would really appreciate it if you shared that with them because I, I think it's going to add a lot of value to the game of a lot of footballers. So really pumped to have launched that one. Apart from that, guys, I'm, uh, I'm out to Bali this Friday, which is the reason that Adam and I recorded this conversation over Skype. He's in South Australia. He's coming to Melbourne on Saturday. I'll be gone, leaving Friday. So um, the internet that I have here was so much better than where I used to do uh, Skype interview, so it was a much more enjoyable enjoyable experience than what I remembered. So, really good conversation. Sit back, relax. This is me and Olympic coach Adam Diddick. Thanks, uh, thanks so much for stopping by. I always, dude, I'm I'm so excited to give you a second chance at the podcast because I felt like the um. The situation that I offered you uh, to be on the podcast last time probably wasn't the mo- most ideal. Do you have any any recollection of the last time we sat down and recorded? Oh, yeah, I was pretty happy with that one actually. I mean, even though we were sitting pretty much inside a cupboard doing it, that's uh, it was still. I thought we hit a home run. Oh, you hit a home run! It's still my most downloaded uh, podcast episode. So I think the the guests are going to be excited that you're back on. But for those of you who who hadn't heard that podcast yet. Um, Adam and I were sitting in a studio apartment, which was my house in London. Um, I'd turned on the best treatment possibly a, a good mate could ever do and set him up a stretcher at the end of our bed. So I thought there was no way we we're going to get a podcast out of him, let alone you being a repeat guest. But um, man, it's it's been so interesting since then because uh, I uploaded that podcast of of ours fairly recently. It turns out people people love what you're offering, man. It's uh, I've always admired the fact that you you were able to put really what I found difficult ideas and concepts into quite simple terms and, and make me and the athletes that you're working with sort of understand where it was that you're going and, and why it is that you're doing it. But it has it sort of, I don't know, is it surprising to you that, that what you're saying struck such a chord with, with so many people? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I think it's it's more a case of um, my passion for, for what I do is is probably that sort of allows me to sort of absorb some of this stuff, but I, it, it does sort of surprise me. I just wonder what I'm doing and, and, uh, and you know, if people want to listen, great, you know. So, yeah, I'll see how this one goes. Put a bit <laughs> no, of pressure on me now. I was going to say, yeah, no I better, pressure. I better, up, I better come up with some pearls of wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it won't take too long. Um, uh, man, we've had uh, – I've done a, a little bit of a survey and I found out that so many of the athletes that are – listening to the the podcast are actually quite new to the sport and seem to have a real preference for marathon running um so i thought what better man to ask uh for for some tips and some strategies around the the marathon preparation game um just to for, for anyone who's new do you just want to give them a little bit of an overview of of sort of who you are who you're coaching and and, and what your big focuses are at the moment yeah, I mean, well, it's definitely not going to be on personal experience of success as a marathoner because that, that wasn't great last year. But, Wait, uh, I'm going to stop you there. Well, I've still beat your time, so it's not bad. <laughs> of four weeks of training, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, maybe just five. <laughs> Sorry. Five, five to six, we'll call it. <laughs> One was a taper week. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt, man. Keep going. 
No, I mean, it's uh, it's actually been a surprise in, in even my own coaching. It, it's not something I intended to do was to jump out and, and, and coach marathon. Um, I've, I was always a track-based runner and only went to the roads late in my sort of running days uh, due to injury and not being able to do the, the track work anymore. So um, I guess it was just on a needs basis and, and I had uh, had a young girl called Jess Drengo who, who was in my group at the time uh, when I started coaching um and it was pretty obvious where her direction was going to go and within four years we were we were training her up for an olympic marathon after a successful attempt to qualify so um in those early days i was i was very much relying on uh the advice and the guidance from people around me and and you know i still remember writing my first training program for the marathon obviously never having done one myself and that's often what a lot of coaches do draw on you know past experiences and so, you know, sitting down with that training program, I wrote to three or four months of it uh, leading into the, uh, her first race, sat down with a guy like Chris Wardlaw, who was obviously a legendary coach in Australia, um, with Steve Monaghetti and Karen McCann and the likes, um, as well as Sean Crichton, who, who coached the two of us um, for a period there and sort of asked for their feedback. And they were, they were you know, reinforcing what I was doing, which was nice um, and, uh, you know, challenged me in a few areas, which is also really good. And, and, and I think that's just part of coaching is being open to some feedback and um, and being open to the fact that you don't know everything um, and recognizing you've got one responsibility and that's to provide the athlete with the best possible results. So, um, you know, however you need to get there, um, whether it's uh, working with others to do that or or, or trusting your own judgment, it's, it's a call you've got to make and, and just make sure you're, you're being responsible to your athlete. So, that all really started it, and I and I think uh, off of uh, Jess making me look good. Um, I mean, let, let's not forget the fact that she's a pretty impressive athlete, and certainly someone I've always recognised as I can get it to a certain point in training, and she can take it to a whole other level in racing. So uh, there's a lot of credit to her for the way she she responds to to races like that and makes them a success. But uh, yeah, I, I, a lot of people looked at me as a marathon coach from that point on uh, because no one had really ever heard of me before that point. So. Um, yeah, well, it definitely wasn't my intention, and I've sort of fallen into the uh, the role of uh, of supporting and guiding many people uh, to marathons since then, um, both at a at an elite level and a recreational level. So it's it's interesting and different, and um, and there's no no one right or wrong. So you know, it's just about exploring with the athlete what they can do. Mm. And it's no doubt you look back at Jess's progression in the last. 10 years and yeah you can say she she definitely has made you look good but i think the that that story can be reversed pretty nicely as well because i think not a lot of people know i was training in adelaide in 2006 and at that time i'm not sure how seriously jess was taking her running but uh, i know she wasn't training with you um and the idea that you'd fast forward the clock 10 years and and you know she would have won two olympic uh, sorry two commonwealth bronze medals run the times that she has is is quite incredible and and for someone like yourself do you get an athlete like jess and 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 pretty quickly notice the event that she's going to specialize in at what point did you think okay she's a marathon runner we're going to start planning her for a marathon uh pretty early on it was it was obvious it was either she was she was going to be a bust and didn't have the the potential or the talent that i sort of hoped she would but i sort of knew she had some relatively good um junior results that's always a an indication of someone who I know wasn't training uh, a great deal as a, as a youngster, um, you know, just sort of doing maybe uh, two or three runs a week with her coach, Roger Pedrick at the time, um, and, and playing sport outside of that. So country medals that offer that sort of training, sort of knew this, this person had a bit of talent. So when she first rocked up at training, I had taken over the group before she came back from overseas. She was on a, on a holiday with her boyfriend at the time. And um, and she rocked up, and all of a sudden her squad's got a new coach, and she wasn't too sure about it. Um, and basically chucked her in the reps with everyone else, and she was she was you know they were all the girls were running away from her. Uh, and, but there was a very noticeable difference that when we do our warm up jogs and warm down jogs, she was fine to run and chat with the boys, where the girls were struggling to to sort of run at that pace. And then when we started seeing her do some of the long runs. Again, she's just chatting away the whole time, just cruising through. So it sort of made no difference to the fact that she struggled during the reps uh, with some of the 800, 1500-meter girls um, who, who, were, who were fairly handy on a state level. Um, and, and, and I think it just sort of showed where her attributes were and, and, and it was obvious that that was probably the likely direction for her unless we could really find a way to generate some speed, which 
which wasn't really happening over the first couple of years. She was improving over the shorter events, but not at the rate that, that we kind of saw her comfort in the longer running. So it was, I, I think within the first year of coaching, I was pretty confident she was going to turn into a marathon runner. It was just more a case of when and and how um, and what the approach might be. And I, I guess I, my, my only key that I sort of recall on is focusing on, on her development as an athlete. Um, and so it didn't matter if we wanted her to run a marathon um, in a couple of years' time. We just needed to focus on, you know, the general progressions of an athlete, getting her aerobically stronger, uh, it, resourcing whatever speed we could out of her legs and um, and seeing where she ended up. And then the breakthroughs were happening over sort of 10K road races and cross-country over the winter. And before you knew it, she was a, she was a national champion in cross-country. We thought, well, within, we're within range of, of, uh, um, of a reasonable attempt a half marathon sort of reinforced that where, where she ran quite well and got selected for the world half marathon team. And then it was, you know, she was still quite young. She was only sort of 23, 24. I think she just turned 24 um, prior to us planning this out. So the the attitude was that maybe she was still a bit young um, and certainly with her years of running, it was still a bit young. And so, I, I again, I, I resorted to, to talking to the, the people I knew who might be able to give me some guidance, Steve Monaghetti, Chris Wardlaw, Sean Crichton, uh, Tim O'Shaughnessy, all, all sort of all sort of gave me their opinion, and, and it, it sort of came back to the point of it was about fifty fifty whether we should have a crack at it. Um, but then it was a bit of advice that said, "Hey, you know, you can't plan for the Olympics to fall on the right year. You've just got to go with when it falls." Um, and so the idea was, well, let's just have it one crack at a marathon. If it gets to the Olympics, great. She'll get some awesome experience and be able to hopefully progress on towards Rio and, 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 and onwards. Um, and if she doesn't, no big deal. We haven't really uh, broken the bank to get her there and, and, and we'll just continue moving on and, and progressing as we like. Um, but, yeah, like I said, fortunately, her first marathon was a was a 2.31.15, I think it was, from memory, um, and she needed a sub 2.32 to qualify. Um, and she, she hit, that, hit that on the nose and, and we were both pretty excited about it. We still had a couple months to wait to see if anyone else was going to improve on the time because she was ranked third Australian at that time, so realistically was only going to be taking the last spot in the marathon team. So we just had to sort of sit and wait, and it all just sort of eventuated as it did. It's pretty cool to, to look at the progression of, of someone like her and the confidence that, that had come out from a, a race or a performance like that. But I think, and you touched on it just then, like you had a track background when you were an athlete and you were, you were sort of going to a lot of the – Australia's best marathon runners over recent years to pick their brain. It must have, must have been a big confidence booster for you when you realised that the training program that you set could produce results like what Jess had just shown they could? Yeah, in a way it did. Um, I mean, I think it was more the confidence to be able to go and have a chat with people to, to be open to that rather than just be protective and think, you know, it all. I think that's the biggest trap a coach can fall into. And, and all the coaches I spoke to are really receptive to helping, and that was a really nice environment to be in because it probably wasn't something I'd experienced prior to that. So, um, yeah, it, it did reinforce things, but still I knew. I mean, uh, writing a training program is one thing, and to be honest with you, it's not the most important thing. It's a management throughout the training program. That's the most important. It, it's a real real key for me is, you know, my training program is only as good as a piece of paper it's written on. Uh, unless it's interpreted correctly and we manage and adapt and change things as necessary, it's really not much good. As a, uh, you, you're really not that <laughs> that great a coach unless you can start doing all of that. So um, that was probably where I got more confidence when we when we knocked it off because uh, you know I, I think we all get caught up trying to look at what the training is uh, and what everyone does rather than why they do it. And I think if we focus on the why, we learn how to adapt it and mould it and modify things to to suit the athlete better. So, um, part that I sort of focus on as a coach is why are we doing something then if I understand it then I can hopefully um, you know modify it when I see the athletes coping or they're not coping or or they're progressing faster than I think but if I'm if I'm just sort of running off of one model then I'm not going to get the best out of the athlete so you know there's there's a couple of ways of looking at things like training programs. Yeah, well, that's one thing I really liked about training under your guidance for the last couple of years of my running career was I think a lot of people on the outside um, who who might hear you speak or who might see your athletes, they might not understand or realize that you do have a, a very, what I probably call a holistic approach to, to running. So many athletes still go out with the mindset that, okay, I want to be a runner, I just got to run. Um, but what I really liked about what you just explained then and also what I got to experience was 
that there are so many different elements that go into creating a, a good runner that running it's sort of it's, it's one of the main ingredients but it's not the it's not necessarily always uh, the, the only ingredient is that uh, is that something that you sort of learnt through through trial and error through your own experience because I think uh, when you, you you start speaking about the um, uh, like all the elements where it's like the uh, your emotional state or your physical state or, or your spiritual state and your uh, wherever you are in your your, your particular um, stage of your journey it has a big impact on your performance on the track. So how did you come to a point where you're like, oh my gosh, like there's so many different avenues that can directly impact the performance of an athlete? Yeah, look, I think in the studies I did in sports psychology, um, I sort of recognise that there's there's far more at play than just than just the the training, um, and and people think they can switch on and switch off, but all the variables actually occur away from training more more often than not. And, and coaches can often only plan for for what they do within their training um, period. So uh, an athlete has to learn how to manage themselves. They need to to know how to recognise um, you know things that are influencing their training. And in in in, in, a, in a psychological model, it's you know peak performance occurs when you have a good alignment between physical, mental, spiritual, and emotional. So uh, so understanding the need to to focus on those areas and help athletes get it right is is probably a big part of what I do. And it's why, why I sort of promote a real balanced approach. So, so my role as a coach might be to write a training program, but if I'm not recognising that there's um, some significant stress in an athlete's life that might be causing um, their energy levels to be impacted or their, their psychological state to be um, affected, then I'm not really recognising that athlete as an individual and as a human being. The athletes are not robots. Uh, we can't just program in a, uh, a, a training program and say, do that and you'll be successful. Because uh, we give that same training program to 100 people and we're going to get varying degrees of success and it'll come down more so as to how do people manage themselves to achieve that training successfully um, and that is, you know, recognising uh, their energy output throughout a day uh, with regards to work, uh, with regards to their emotional um, sort of state in, in what they give to a, to a friendship or a relationship or, or if that things in those areas are negative, how they, how they then influence on the athlete. Do they rock up with a level of tension, which might lead to injuries? There's a whole lot of these factors that we that we constantly have to be um, attuned to, so that we can support the athlete. and And I think if we if we just look at athletes as well, that training program worked for so and so, it'll work for you. Well, we're, we're we're starting well behind go, and we need to we need to focus on that athlete first and foremost, and then write the training um, towards them. And, and it's funny as to how much I've sort of feel like I've shifted my views from that, whereas I was quite comfortable giving everyone the same training program in the early days, whereas then I've sort of seen the refinements I need to make to individual athlete programs as we've gone. Um, and and that's a lot of hard work at times. It uh, takes a lot of energy. I think the the emotional toll on the coach is quite high um, by, you know, really um, allowing and fostering a, a really positive relationship with the athletes. And, and, you know, it's, it's like I, I say quite often, I'm not there to be their best friend, I'm there to be their coach. But to be their coach, I need to be aware of so many factors. Um, not being invasive to their lives, but just have their open enough relationship with them for, for them to be able to come and say, hey, look, this and this is not going so well in my life at the moment. And, and for me to sort of recognise how that might impact on their running and support them through their running to maybe either cope with it or, or to still try and maximise what we can do through certain periods, even though uh, there's a potential compromise there. Is that? I guess that's something that would just uh, it would build over time. I can I can imagine with an athlete that's been with you for ten years, they'd be comfortable enough to be open about, or hopefully to be open about what it is they're dealing with, what it is that they're going through. But um, I know if I w- went to a new coach and was a little bit intimidated or a little bit nervous, I would probably want to play my cards a bit close to their chest. Is that something that you're trying to nurture as you as you're building the as you're building the athlete, just to try and because um, I can imagine uh, with that just on paper, you could go in and have a new athlete and just try and pick their brain about exactly where they're at, what they're experiencing, but it could be a little bit intimidating. So how do you how do you sort of uh, focus on nurturing that part of the athlete's life without sort of scaring the crap out of them initially? Yeah, look, it is it is a challenge and um, and and obviously wanting to foster and promote these relationships it's it's hard with the the perspective and views that people might come in. Uh, and, and what their experiences with coaches are prior to, to working with me if they've had anyone. So um, my, my challenge is to, to be available. 
uh, and and you know it's not easy. Um, I think sometimes working in in more of a high high performance um, uh, at level of, of running, you recognise there's some real harsh realities, um, and and you need to have the ability to be critical uh, and be able to share that critique with with an athlete, even though um, even though there's there's quite a, um, a risk there of um, of scaring an athlete off. So you know, if if we're not sort of providing the appropriate criticism to allow an athlete to recognise where they need to improve, then we're not going to get we're not going to get the best out of them either. So uh, when when athletes sort of view and see me being that way with with some of my athletes, they also don't recognise that the the level of the relationship to get to that point for them to be able to receive that criticism. Um, and, and it, it really comes down to me to deliver that in an appropriate manner. Uh, and sometimes I can be a bit blunt and, and have to recognize that that can be intimidating for people to, to see, but it's, it's only when they start to, to work with me one-on-one, when they actually sit down and have a coffee with me, they realize I'm not that scary. <laughs> and, um, and, and I am there for them and I am there to support them. And I think that's probably the, 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 the time for me that I, I enjoy coaching the most, that time to be able to sit down in the coffee shop and just focus purely on that individual um, and for them to see that I've got their best interests in, at, at heart and, um, and I, I want to see them succeed and I'm right behind them to, to do that. Um, but it also comes down to them participating in that relationship as well. You know, there's no, no point in me having all of these intentions with the athlete not recognising or respecting that fact. Um, and, and I see it, I see it quite a bit with coaches where where they sort of just feel they have to take it all on board. But realistically, you know, if if any situation is going to work, both parties have to be prepared to work effectively together. Um, and if that's not going to happen, then it's probably best you're not working at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can't just be all one way. So. So the athlete needs to be able to be comfortable with coming and giving the, the feedback. But they also need to uh, foster an environment to allow the coach to come forward and give them the feedback that they need and um, and to, to allow them to be supportive. So, you know, it's a two-way street and and, uh, and it's something I discuss with all the athletes I coach right from the, right from the get-go uh, because I don't want to be the one making all the effort and them not re- recognising it. And I also I want them to know that they're not the ones making all the effort and and I'm just I'm just sitting on their coattails. Mm. So it's important they recognise that we're both in it together, um, and uh, and we need to work well together. Otherwise, it's just not going to happen. Yeah, it's so funny for me to hear you speak about how you can be perceived as a little bit blunt because I obviously know you so well. We're good mates now, but it's taken me a couple of years to really understand exactly where you're coming from. But I, I laugh so much, man. Looking back to 2006 when I moved to Adelaide, um, age 19, you were 25, and you sort of took me under your wing and just called out so much of the ridiculous habits that I developed, like leaving my car door open when we're going for a warm-up or, or just <laughs> some of the other things. But I reckon um, that once you understand that it's actually, yeah, the the intention behind that, uh, 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 there's never been a time you've just called me out for the sake of just being an asshole. You've called me out because you can see that yeah. there's a, an area for improvement. So um, I think if anyone can get to the point in their relationship, well, so many obviously can, where they, uh, where they, where they can understand that it's a really, a really powerful thing to have. But... Man, I want to pivot a, a little bit in the conversation because I mentioned at the start that um, uh, quite a few people who listen to the podcast are, are the marathon runners or, or interested in starting running the marathon, and and obviously have already covered that you know it's not a one size fits all approach to to training. But for for someone who is new to the event who um, uh, might not necessarily have a, a huge background in running, um, who are just they're, they're sort of really attracted to the the physical challenge of running a marathon and improving their performance like where would you where would you start with an athlete if you were just sitting down for that first conversation what are some of the areas uh, of their life or of their training or of sort of their intention would you like to know before you before you wrote them a program yeah i mean i think knowing the past is always important to to working at starting point so um you know i've had athletes or runners come to me from all sorts of backgrounds, from people who were who were uh, professional dancers to, to people who played soccer to, to people who had just gotten off the couch and decided, I want to run a marathon. Um, so, you know, there, there's such a different starting point for everyone. Um, and, and more often than not, I'm fairly conservative uh, as we get going. Uh, it's about me learning about the athlete and and what they can what they can tolerate, what they can do, um, and it's also them understanding what they can do. Uh, and I also think that a longevity in the sport and longevity with, with any exercise like this is important. So 
if we break them down too too early or we or we hurt them um, and, and it's and it's more than what they were ready to, to psychologically cope with then we're not going to see them get to their goals so um, understanding their motivations and, and and why they're doing what they're doing is, is so important to me it then gives me a bit of a license to, to work out my approach so if someone says hey I really want to do this and they give me a, a very genuine reason uh, then I can see that they're going to really tolerate a lot and they're prepared to to um, to work hard for it where they want to get to. But if someone's got a very flimsy reason as to why they want to actually do something, uh, then I, I think we see that that, that motivation is not sustainable. So I, I, that, that intention of and purpose is so important for me to understand, it, not just in people I work with, but in, in general with, with people. So going from that point, uh, you know, it's obviously we need to know a timeline. Like I said, some people say, I just want to get fit. You know, I want to be able to run around with my kids. Um, and, you know, if I can do a marathon one day, that's great. Other people will come to me. And this is, this is not uncommon. It's, uh, it's March or April or even May. Oh, I've signed up for New York Marathon. Uh, it's in November. Um, I, I, I've, uh, I've already paid for the package to travel over there and do it. I'm raising money for charity. I'm like, that's fantastic. So what running have you done for? I've done none. So I've got, okay, well, we've got about, what, six or seven months to try and take someone from the couch to a marathon. And and it, funny enough, it, it's not as hard as what people make it out to be, um, but it's a challenge and they need to be committed to it. So, uh, you know, that, that timeline is so important. If they're prepared to be patient, we can be far more conservative. If they're not prepared to be patient, then we don't <laughs> – we, we've got to take a few more risks and, and try and be as calculated as possible – in general, when people are looking at marathon, it's just about increasing the amount of running load that you can do and just gradually getting there. It's not a not a need to go out there and run fast all the time or to run faster or every week. It's just about being able to do more and more and more to, to finally get them up to the point where they can confidently uh, approach a marathon knowing that they've got it under control. Hey, it may take them four, five, six hours uh, as some of the runners that I've coached to, to these events, but... Um, that's all, all irrelevant. It's their own personal challenge and, and it's about respecting what they can do. So, um, so in many respects, uh, they're trying to lengthen out their running is generally the first thing because as, as, as we all are aware, a marathon is not the typical behavior of what the, the general population does. So that takes some sort of uh, extraordinary measures to get there and going out running for two or three hours on a weekend is not something that everyone does. So we just need to gradually pick up and, and, um, and get people's bodies ready to do that, get them comfortable with it. And, you know, it even is understanding the personality of someone and going, okay, one of the one of the key features for some of the people is to help them organise a running group to be able to have someone to train with because they, they, they are quite sociable beings and, and want to interact with others and just going out and running for three hours solo with the headphones in on the weekend is not something that they're going to be too motivated to do. So, you know, and, and I've often found that interaction with others is – is a real, real keeper in, in uh, having athletes on a sustainable model. Mm, yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. So I'm, I'm planning on running. I want to run two marathons next year, man. And my goal, I can see you smirking because I feel like you know my goal is to beat three hours and four minutes. No, I, uh, I'm, I'm pretty keen to get back out there because I know I was really, I was really slack with, with my approach to the, the training for the marathon last year in terms of my long runs and stuff like that. But a bloke like me, so you, you sort of, you know my history in, in the sport. Um, I've pretty consistently been running like three or four times a week for the last however many years, like go back as far as you want. I was probably running three or four times a week there. What would be, for a bloke in my situation, what would you uh, imagine are some of the, the key workouts or some of the key measurements of, of my progress towards um, running a marathon well? Yeah, I mean, the most is, is focus on the long run. Um, and that, that sounds sounds so simple, but it really is. Um, all the other workouts you're doing is not necessarily um, going to make the biggest difference to your marathon if you can't actually cover the distance. So I think it's about building you up gradually to, to, to get to those long runs and then making them consistent. And then at points actually speeding them up to, towards the pace that you want to do. And that's not the whole run, but just certain parts of it and, and maybe lengthening it out. For you, Tyson, you, you've obviously got quite a background in your track running, so your speed's not an issue for for a marathon, uh, but it's about becoming efficient at the marathon pace you want. So it might be about working out some of your some of your training sessions so that you lengthen out the volume 
and uh, and expose yourself to a pace slightly faster than your um, than your marathon pace, so that you can become more efficient at your marathon pace. So I always look at uh, the, the faster running as a as a way of increasing a, a level of power output and load in the in the muscles and the and the tendons and all your joints. And so um, to use it as a, as a purpose of getting strength uh, strength out of your legs and and obviously uh, that will hopefully translate to to you running more efficiently at your own pace. So you know they're they're probably your two keys. It's about you know getting that long run to the point where you can be confident in it. And uh, and working out some of your sessions so that you don't need to go back to trail like a fifteen hundred meter runner, but utilizing some of those sessions at uh, at just sub marathon pace to be able to expose yourself to to a greater efficiency. Mm, that was the mistake I think I made last year when I was running the Melbourne Marathon. I started training a little bit here with Zach Newman and. Um, he was running some really quick short sessions and I was keeping, well, not quite keeping up with him, but I was a, a little bit off the back and thinking, gee, I'm, I'm in pretty good form here. But I think I was probably in good form for a 5K race rather than a marathon because I remember I got to 19Ks and I thought, you know, 23Ks is, is, is a long way and I don't feel like I could run another five. <laughs> so it was, yeah. a, it was a brutal realization. But I was speaking with um, Maddie, who we call the guru on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. And one of the sessions that uh, I'd, I'd heard you speak about, um, which you, you sort of briefly touched on there of, of running at a pace faster than your goal marathon pace is um, going out and running. I don't know the exact um, sort of metrics, but you might run for two and a half hours or two hours, but from 90 minutes to two hours, you'll you'll spend that 30 minutes running at a, at a pace a little bit quicker than what your marathon pace is. Is that something that um, you would recommend to your athletes who are, who are training for a marathon? Yeah, it's something that's fairly consistent within our training approach and model these days as it is. Uh, but it, it was it was probably born out of just, you know, I, I, I wouldn't say it's unique, but it's not something I had done before as an athlete. Uh, but it was just trying to be a bit creative, obviously, as I, as I refer back to, to Jess's first marathon days and she – you know, you know, has gotten up to 200k a week in some of her training loads. But back then, in the first marathon, she was probably more equal to 135, 140 to you know the odd, odd week a little bit longer than that. So it's about how do we actually utilise that long run to to give her a bit more bang for a buck, knowing that we're not going to get the true volume that she needs to to run competitively in a marathon. And so, um, so we just started playing around with this where. Where the last half an hour of her run, and and she was getting out to two and a half hours, but the last half an hour would be just gradually building up to to running at or, or below her marathon pace. So it wasn't supposed to be a half hour of, of hell at the end of a run, just gradually progressing. And like like we sort of said, um, exposing yourself to a faster pace. And I mean, obviously, you've got some physiological sort of uh, aspects to that. It was you know learning to cope with the you know level of glycogen depletion. Um, and having your body adjust to some of those things. But at the end of the day, I think from a psychological point of view, just knowing that you can keep going at that point of your run, you know, two and a half hours in and you're actually moving pretty well is, is probably a fair bit of confidence for a marathon runner who's going to be out there for two and a half hours. Um, it, it's something I've sort of played with as to how much it can impact someone um, if they're having to go for a three and a half, four hour marathon. You know, do, do we sort of go for you know, the, the three and a half hours or whatever have you run. And I think that, that way we sort of work more on, on distance than, than time. But I think that's a, it's probably one of the more specific elements of, a, of marathon training to do something like that. Uh, and, and we'll regularly touch on what marathon pace is in the lead up to a marathon. And I'll, I'll often refer to it in a training program. Like I want you to be five seconds faster per kilometre marathon pace here, or I want you to, uh, to be five or ten seconds slower through this part of your run or whatever have you. So so we, I'm really trying to get athletes tuned into it. And, and and a lot of it's just become, you know, quite a natural part of our long runs these days. It's not it's not something that typically needs to be um, implemented in the strategy, uh, just how, how the athletes are starting to do their runs. Um, so, yeah, no, I mean, I, I remember um, speaking to a guy like Rob DiCostello, um probably two years after Jess had started marathon running and, you know, he used to talk about the two and a half hour runs he did where he said the first hour everyone's running together, the second hour sorts people out, and the last half an hour it's like hang on and or, or try and try and knock everyone off. You know, they're pretty much racing. So uh, it was it was funny how this sort of approach has been going on for years and years and some of the best marathoners have done that. But then, you know, I, I always as I say, there's no right or wrongs in running. Then you can go to people who have, you know, uh, really slow long runs and still be some of our best marathoners ever. 
And I still remember running with guys like Steve Monaghetti, who, when I first rocked up to go for rolling, he says, you're probably going to find our pace frustratingly slow. And I said, oh, no, it'll be fine. Like, I'm, I know the quality of a runner Steve Monaghetti is, but as he, as, he, as he states, you know, he does his long runs fairly comfortably. Um, he covers the volume, but he's, he's got, uh, got a lot of running during his week that sort of, you know, brings it all together and blends together to be a really positive marathon program. So, you know, there's no right or wrongs in running. Um, you, you've got to sort of work out what works best for you and what's going to keep you healthy and injury-free. Yeah, are they doing these? Because uh, I know Belair National Park is is one of the parks where we used to do a lot of our running in South Australia. Around the, I got that name right, haven't I? It's it's sort yeah, of, yeah. yeah. I was thinking, I didn't know if I was just quoting something from Prince of Belair or if I just totally embarrassed myself. I was yeah. going to have to edit that part out. Um, which I know has got a, a couple of hills, but for someone who's doing a two and a half hour run, would you encourage that run to be done over a few hills, or do you try and keep it flat, or you just play a little bit of a mix game? Yeah, I think it's knowing your terrain is, is important as to whether you can utilise them. So a lot of our faster sort of long runs don't take place in Blair National Park. Um, but still, uh, the one thing I've, I've changed from the days where we used to um, where we used to run together, where we'd start at the bottom of the National Park and would obviously climb to the top and then run all the way down the second half of the run, we, we, we've changed that now. We actually start at the top of the park so that they're running uphill for the second half of their run. And there was a couple of reasons for that. One, it, it offers a very similar stimulus to, to what we talk about with that pickup type approach, um, where their, their last 6K is a fairly solid hill. Um, and, it, you know, they're, they're you know, up to you know, 20, 25 minutes up this hill. Uh, and, and, and sometimes they're, they're booting along pretty, pretty nicely at that point. Uh, the other part of it was that when we were trying, and, and naturally we just sort of found that that second half of the run was, was fairly quick. But it beat up our bodies a fair bit, and by the by the session on the Tuesday, if we've done our long run on the Sunday up at Belair, we're still pretty sore or pretty tired uh, from the pounding we cop from you know running hard downhill. So uh, it just seemed to be a bit of a model that that we sort of shifted and changed, and 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 sort of the the quality of our sessions improved, our injury rates slowed down, uh, and and it just seemed to work better. And, and now now the athletes in the group really like that challenge of that final sort of six k climb to. To, to finish off their run, um, and they, they know that that's coming, so that they're, they're kind of ready for it, and, and they, they like that sort of solid part of their, their, their long run. So, mm. um, yeah, it was done for a couple of reasons, but that was the reasons why. But generally, when I schedule a run where they are picking up the pace, it is on the flats around the city. It's a, it's a non-stop kind of run, so you don't get stopped by too many traffic lights or anything like that, and it just has its own flow. Uh, and and I'm, I'm really keen to allow them – the freedom to be able to run without the influence of hills up and down hills, which can impact that that intensity. So that's pretty much the way we've planned it from now on. Yeah, it's one of the questions I have because uh, I know Fernie Creek here in Melbourne is a really popular place to go and do your long runs, and I really enjoy the scenery out there and I feel good after it. But I always question whether or not I'm sacrificing too much quality for a Tuesday or Thursday session because it's it's just so brutal on the legs. I'm not sure what the elevation game would be, but it, in some parts of that run, you just feel like you're running up. Up, up, pretty much just vertical hills for about half an hour straight, and there's some yeah. some really big ones out there. So, like in in your mind, if you were uh, if you had a couple of athletes in Melbourne, I don't know actually if you're have you done much running out at Fernie Creek? No, I've not actually been to Fernie, but I'm aware of what it's all about, and uh, and I've had athletes who, who train out there. I think there's there's two things to sort of respect here, and it's that's one that the hills actually provide you a great deal of strength, so it's not something we want to get away from. And, and uh, and it's and, and it's also what is the purpose of your long run on any given way? We don't have because on our on our alternate weeks, so we basically have a hard long run every second week. So on our alternate weeks, um, they they are running at a more gradual, relaxed pace, and I'm more than happy for the hills to be in that and to provide a sort of a, a challenging stimulus to them throughout those runs. And also the strength gains from running downhill is is quite important too. Uh, but knowing the, uh, that the paths may not be smooth and we, you know, we're, we're at a bit of an, uh, an increased injury risk by running hard through certain parts of the trails, it, it does change things a little bit for us. So with our, session, uh, with our long runs um, uh, that, that we actually do at a faster pace, that's actually recognised as one of our sessions for the week. So, uh, so we, we've sort of changed the purpose of that long run subtly to, to gain a different um, – stimulus from it so in some respects uh we protect the the aims of the session um over the location 
So uh, if, if that could be done on trails that are nice and, uh, you know, that are fairly smooth or we can, we can get a flatter part of it or, or a reasonable terrain, then, then I, I wouldn't have a problem with it. I'd much prefer the athletes to be doing their longer runs on dirt paths and trails. But if that's just not available, then you've got to, you've got to protect yourself and, and do the right thing. So, yeah, that, that's pretty much how, how we'd approach it. Yeah, generally speaking, do you get the the guys who are doing these long runs? Do they go out with gels and drinks and things like that? I'm on the hunt at the moment because I just um, I really hated gels last year when I was doing the marathon. I just there was something about it that just did not sit right with me. And I I, I try it wasn't something that I pulled out on race day and gave it a go. It was three or four months in the lead up to it. I would trial it on a run, and I just I don't know. I just couldn't quite get used to it. But is there anything that you recommend or that your athletes are using on a regular basis that you that you think's good? Yeah, oh look, I mean, my, my greatest learnings in this space has come since working with Jared Tallent. Uh, the race walkers are all over this stuff, and they they do an amazing job. And they've, they've had a lot of research studies done in Australia with with, uh, with nutritionists like Louise Burke at the AIS, who have really guided some of the approaches on, you know, adequate nutrition through endurance sports. So, you know, in recognizing what was being done in marathon compared to what was happening in race walks, it was it was chalk and cheese. The the race walkers were all on top of this, and and with Jared, it was um it was it was one of my key roles when I started coaching was to was to carry a backpack full of gels, lollies, and drinks uh, when we'd go out on his on his long walks, which are you know forty forty five k, and you know it would, it'd be a very structured routine where. Or I'd be giving him a drink every two kilometres. I'd give him a lolly on the on the four and eight uh, kilometres out of every ten, and uh, and a gel every ten. I mean, and uh, you know, I mean, that's quite a load to take on um, in your guts. And so, you know, I'd, I'd I'd witnessed Jared being quite sick as he was getting adjusted to this. But it was so important so that on race day he could adequately take on the appropriate nutrition he needed to be able to to tolerate it in a race and utilise it effectively. Um, in in the running world, there seems to be I, I don't I wouldn't know I wouldn't suggest it's a technical opposition to to approaching things like this, but it's more challenging. There's a there's a little bit of a different approach with um, with race walkers. If you if you ask them to do their long walk on a two k loop, they're probably more than happy so they can have their access to their nutrition and their fueling. Uh, whereas runners, we love to get out and about, love to run out in the trails and have someone you know. Um, ride a bike and provide you with drinks and stuff is, is a pure luxury for, for most runners, if not all runners. So it's not something that, that's really common practice. But at the same time, carrying a couple of gels on you is, is not a hard thing to do, um, and it does give you that opportunity to, to adapt to, to how you, your gut tolerates it. And, and as, as in the walking world, they'll, they'll call it, they'll, they'll say it's, it's gut training. It's about mm-hmm. you know getting the gut ready to tolerate that, that amount of um, – uh, of, of fuel during a race. So uh, even in my my five six week preparation, I made sure that on my long runs I was taking two or three gels, which was ridiculous because I only went over twenty k twice um, before my marathon, and uh, and yet I was still forcing these gels into me because I knew I was going to have to take them um, uh, in in the marathon, and so I just sort of tried to offer the same frequency of. Of use um, as I as I was going to have to on, on marathon day because it, it would have been nothing worse if I was trying to down these gels and just on the side of the road vomiting or feeling sick and and not being able to take on any water or anything which obviously would have impacted my hydration. So um, so I, I'm I'm a real encourager of, of taking on gels during long runs and and now you know uh, we we had some Morton product that we took out with our group the other week and um, and as they started their pickup part you know prior to that. I sort of handed out gels to everyone in the group, and and funny enough, the feedback was, "Geez, I felt a lot better today after having that gel." I'm like, well, great. I mean, that's a purpose to it. And I mean, there's always this argument of, uh, don't we want to get to 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 the body to to be prepared for that? But my view is that you're not doing this on a on a one-off. You know, there's 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 strategy and purpose to doing that depletion type approach, but you're also trying to manage a whole training week. And so if you've got so much recovery after a long run that you can't come up with the rest of your training week that follows, then, you know, is, is that the best thing for you? So to, so to get to the end of your run not being so depleted might actually be a benefit to supporting your recovery on the, on the flip side of it to allow your, your training week and your, your phases to progress more, uh, more smoothly. Mm. What are your thoughts on when it comes to recovery, what kind of things are you getting your athletes to do? Sleep and eat is probably the 90 
five to ninety nine percent. I'm not really too caught up in the in the recovery world of of gizmos and gadgets and um, and things like that. Um, uh, you know, I I sort of I see a lot of a lot of ideas out there. You know, the hot cold bath and spas and and all this sort of stuff. And look, I, I don't see there's any harm in doing most of these things. Um, but I think it's also important to let your body re- recover naturally. And and we're always trying to force a recovery, which is fine because we're trying to promote that the healing and all those sort of things, but it's actually the healing that makes us stronger. So I, I still, re, you know, recall the, uh, you know, the loading patterns of what a Tour de France cyclist goes through, and they can not possibly recover from day to day. It's just too much, mm. and and yet you know, we're trying to they actually get stronger as the tour goes on for some of them. So you know, there's some actual benefits from from that recovery process. So you know, sleep and nutrition is is your, your keys. Get them right, and then. Then put all these other little gizmos, gadgets, and and methods in place. But uh, if you can't get your sleep right, and you can't, and you're not eating effectively or properly for what your requirements are, then that's going to be a real issue for you. And some of those things aren't. Uh, some of those other little one percenters aren't really going to take or make too much of a difference unless you get the the ninety percent right, I guess. So mm. um, I guess that that's my key approach to that. Yeah, it's so funny you say it because I think. It's, it is exciting, like you get caught up in the gizmos and gadgets and you forget the things that just been around forever, do you know what I mean? And and possibly yeah. like sleep, I, I know in our in our society it's something that often is sacrificed just for the, you know, for the sake of getting a little bit more work done or watching another movie or whatever. So it's it, it's sort of uh, the most obvious thing but possibly the most, you know, ignored, I guess, if you looked across the, if you, if you did a big scope across the athletic scene. I was reading a couple of weeks ago that the average person in 1960 was getting eight hours of sleep a night and the average person in 2017 or a couple of years ago when it was written is is rocking at about six and a half hours um just due to the the fact that we've just got you know work at our door at our fingertips whenever it is that we need it or we just got entertainment at our fingertips whenever it is that we need and i know our athletes aren't immune to that kind of stuff either yeah and and i and i i've often monitored sleep patterns in athletes where they log how many hours a night they sleep and someone like Jess was was fantastic in getting appropriate sleep but she also recognized it was one of the key uh, habits she needed to form because when she didn't get you know eight or nine hours sleep she she started to really notice the difference so um, so she was quite disciplined in in getting adequate sleep even in the choice of whether she'd get out to an early training session or, or, or whatnot depending on how her week was going and 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 I think it's something we've all got to be respectful of is you know sometimes uh, you know, I hate to say it, but sometimes you need to compromise a run to get the uh, to get the sleep requirements. So often you have people doing you know morning runs if they're doing an evening session. Well, geez, if you can't get up and get your butt out into your running shoes and and um, and and start the run, then maybe your best best sleeping so that you've got the adequate recovery and can keep pushing on. It's a it's more a case of if that habit forms that you can never manage to get out and do that morning run, then maybe you need to adjust some of your lifestyle uh, factors to. To go from there, and this is what we alluded to earlier. Um, a training programs <laughs> only so valuable because if an athlete's not managing these other aspects of, of their daily life, then um, then that training program is not going to be absorbed in the way it was intended. Mm-hmm. So we kind of write that uh, training program with almost the best case scenario in mind, um, and it's a hard thing for athletes to understand this because it's almost a personal challenge to get through it all. And so when you make a change or you modify or you lessen the training load. There's, there's an element of stress associated with that, thinking, well, isn't that what I'm supposed to be doing? And I've constantly had these sort of uh, discussions with athletes. I said, that's that's if everything's going to plan. That's if you know life's running smoothly and perfectly. But the reality is, you're gonna you're gonna come across a few bumps uh, along the way, and and expect those would, would would take away from your training and and your ability to be able to absorb your training and recover from it's going to be lessened. So yeah, you're sometimes better off prioritizing. Uh, those lifestyle factors to get them right before the training is going to make much of a difference. Mm, so for someone like Jess now who's just had a little bub, um, what do you sort of hit the brakes on the running schedule for a couple of weeks or, or what do you encourage someone like her to do when it comes to recovery and, and that training baby balance? Uh, it, look, it's going to be a challenge uh, for her, but you know, one that she's already taking like a champion. Um, as I've sort of seen her um, adapt to, to life as a mother, and, and she's only just started running as of last week, so um, and it's only very light on at the moment. And, and we have had those exact discussions about um, about managing with with sleep sort of related issues and, and those sort of things. I mean, 
they said to be quite lucky. Little Billy seems to be a really good sleeper, which is unlike my two, uh, <laughs> who, who are still who are still jumping into my bed and, and driving me nuts every night of the week. So, uh, you know, uh, I'd give anything to have two kids that sleep perfectly through the night. So she, she may be quite fine um, every day, but but it's not only that for for her now as a mother. It's about the emotional energy and the nonstop nature of being a parent, which I'm sure uh, any parents who are listening would would uh, would attest to. Um, you can try and plan your week out perfectly, but it's never going to run perfectly and smoothly. Uh, so you need to be adaptable, you need to be flexible, uh, and you need to be um, conscious of what the realities of your situation at any given time of the year or, um, or, or period in your training. Uh, and, and you need to be open um, enough to be able to say, hey, look, <laughs> I've had a couple of crap nights sleep. Uh, I, I just need to call my jets for a couple of days because I'm rocking up to training and I'm dragging my butt through the warm-up. I don't know that it's a really good idea for me to push. And I, and I think this is, and I know you and I have spoken about this in the past, it was it's a little sort of um, little schematic that I sort of created for our for athletes as a, as a readiness to train sort of scale. Um, and I don't do it anymore, and I don't think I really need to because I think my athletes got it after a couple of months of me doing it. I'd, I'd be the pest out of training with a clipboard going around collecting four numbers off everyone. And those four numbers was they needed to rate their, their, um, their fatigue, their soreness, their health, and their stress out of five. And, and I've often sort of promoted this idea of this is your readiness to train. Just because it's a training session day and it's a Thursday doesn't mean you need to do that session if it's mm-hmm. not going to be what's best for you. So, you know, I, I'd often say, okay, if you add those four numbers together, obviously five being the, the highest and the, and the negative part of that scale, the, the one being, you know, everything's going good. So if those numbers added up, those four numbers added up to less than 10, Good to go. Just continue on with what's planned. If they're between 10 and 15, then we'd have to consider a, a modification or have that discussion with the athletes to see if that was necessary. If they're between 15 and 20, I'd just send them home and say, go home and relax mm. um, and just just get yourself back to a, to a better state because if their health's not good, if they're too stressed, then, then you know, these are, um, these are factors that are going to influence your training more than we recognize. And it also, it also helps the athlete to be more... Uh, adept in in assessing whether they're ready to train or what are some of the factors in their lifestyle that they need to learn to manage or invest at certain parts of the year. You know, I mean, if, if they've got a, a relationship issue that's uh, that's blowing up for them and they and they are coming out to training with that, uh, maybe they need to actually invest the time to stay home and and uh, and work on that relationship on that day or train on their own when they've got the time rather than coming out to the group. Uh, we just have to be respectful of the fact that everyone's got their own lives and, and not everyone's going to rock up to the training in the same state just because they've been doing, you know, similar training leads. Mm. Man, I, uh, I've got one more question for you. I'll let you, go, let, uh, let you get going in just a second. But you're coming over for Zatapec this Saturday. It's Wednesday today. What, what day are you coming over, did you say? Oh, I fly in on the day. So I'm there, I'm there Saturday morning and I'm, and I'm home with the family by Sunday morning. So yeah, it's a quick trip over. Yeah, okay. I wish I could have been there. I told you before we hit record, Jesse and I are heading over to Bali uh, for the first time since our honeymoon where I got the worst case of Bali belly you've ever seen. So I'm going back just to see if I can conquer Bali. But um, I'll edit this out if you if you get it too far wrong. But have you got any predictions? I, I know the 10K field looking pretty stacked. Oh, look, there's some pretty classy runners in there and it's probably one of the best 10K fields I've seen in Australia since I've been running. So... Um Look, there's some some class athletes in there. Stu McSwain's obviously been incredible over the last few years. I think Pat Tiernan is the one who really needs a big run this weekend. Looking at the um, looking at the qualification for the Olympics, so I think he'd be very keen for a big run. And I I wouldn't be surprised if the guys, uh, if the conditions are are appropriate, uh, are, are running you know mid 27 minutes. So you know I'm I'm hoping for that. I'm crossing my fingers and I'm. Really hoping the boys get after it and can can get those results. I think uh, you know it'd be really, really to have one or two people in that 10k um, in Tokyo next year. So you know I'll be uh, I'll be cheering for them to, to get after the pace and, and hopefully achieve that. Do you reckon Big Paddy could beat Stu? Well, anything's possible, uh, but I'm not going to call it. <laughs> I, I think uh, I think the fat team that we saw back in in, in 2017 is uh, is more than capable of of being one of the best 10K runners in the world, but also what we've seen from Stewie over the last two years has just been phenomenal, and, and I, I, I'd never write that bloke off. So, sorry, I'm not going to call one over the other at this stage. I think they'll both be, uh, depends on what shape they rock up in, and um, and I'm not, 
I'm not too clued into how each of them are going at this stage, so uh, so it'll be an exciting race to watch nonetheless. Sure. So the answer was Tat Tiernan. Is that right? <laughs> I'm just joking. I'm excited to see it. I'll be live streaming from Dempasar, no doubt. Anyway, yeah, man. I'm sure, hey, uh, I'm sure anyone anyone who watches it will enjoy this. This will be a classic race for sure. That's awesome. I don't do too many of these. Actually, this is the first Skype interview I've done since we started this podcast. So, um, oh, hang on, for... you've got to go back to the women. You haven't even spoken about the women's race. So we're oh. talking gender equity here, Tyson. I'm so sorry about that. I'm going to edit this part so it all flows beautifully. My next question, of course, <laughs> was what about the women's race? Who's going to win that? What a stacked field. <laughs> yeah, look, it's it's uh, it's got a few people. Uh, I feel like I've just it. lost 423 <laughs> listeners, <laughs> and I'd like to run a public apology. And I'm going to get started as soon as we end this podcast. Well, let's see if we can work them back for you. <laughs> Look, I, I think there's um, there's some quality in that field, and um, and you know, it's I'm very interested to see how someone like Jen Gregson goes. Obviously, more of a steeple chaser and someone who's a debt to, to the shorter distances, but uh, ridiculously good in Bernie um, this year. And uh, and I can I can see her going on doing something pretty special. Uh, these steeple chasers are tough athletes, so mm. um, we'll, we'll see how she goes. Uh, some of the other the, the local girls who are um, who are who are going well, you've got um, you've got Emily Brickacek, who's who's obviously been someone who has been around the mark for a number of years and and is likely to to really put herself in the in the mix. Uh, is quite a brave runner, so uh, she'll be one to watch. Rose Davies gave Jen Gregson a really good run uh, in uh, in Noosa, uh, and then and then you know I'm always going to be. Uh, a little bit biased and, and supportive of those local South Australians and, and Caitlin Adams, who I coach, and, and Tara Palm. I think both of them are running well and showed them the South Australian state champs and, and can can deliver a good result. So, you know, and there's a couple there have even come back from the US so um, for, off the college system. So we'll, uh, we'll, we'll wait to see what someone like Jess Pascoe can do after she ran NCAA cross recently. Gee, do you think it's going to be going to be a case of Ricochet trying to outrun the legs of someone like Gregson? Because I can imagine a girl like Gregson, she goes she goes pretty nicely over fifteen hundred three k. What she run like eight forty four? If you got those speeds sitting on your legs with two hundred to go, you're in a dangerous position. I don't even know what Ricochet's run for fifteen. Yeah, no, Ricochet's pretty fifteen two. But I think the most recent form was Jen um, running away from Emily late in the race at uh, at Bernie, which which has me excited for what she might be able to do. So. Uh, and she obviously comes from a stable of really, um, really impressive 10K runners. So, um, you know, be interesting. And then we've also got, I just noticed we've got the Canadian, um, Sakafian, um, so who, who looks like she's um, she's going to be one one to watch as well. So, yeah, it'll be an interesting race, the women's race also. And, and you know, hopefully we can get quite a number of them down low, 32. And uh, if the conditions are great, who knows, they might even, they might even jump just under. Which would be really positive for next year. Oh, that'd be awesome. If you can, if the conditions are great, which they, I actually, I ran my fifteen hundred at Box Hill, and if you get the conditions right there, can there's don't go into doubt. I can see you smiling, and you know you've beat me in another PB. I'm gonna, uh, I'm only gonna bring up PBs that I've got that are faster than you from now on because I just don't like seeing that smile on the other side of the camera. <laughs> Adam beat my fifteen hundred meter PB by zero point zero one of a second. <laughs> It was. I think there was still a tiny bit of wind this night at Box Hill. I reckon I would have run three forty eight if it wasn't for that little bit of wind, and I forgot to dip at the end. So technically, um, no, you've still got the PB. I'm trying to backtrack. I'm trying to find out a way that I. It's all right. I, co- I copped a few elbows in the heat of the fifteen hundred <laughs> nationals when I did mine. So, uh, so I, re- I reckon we both would have run three forty two Tyson if oh, everything that, was perfect. That's right. It's so frustrating. I ran that race in Bluntstones. <laughs> Um, uh, what I was going to say is it's a beautiful track if you nail it. And the atmosphere down there, it's, I reckon it's nicer than Lakeside Stadium. If you can get everyone around the track, it's a, like, it's a beautiful little cozy atmosphere that I think would, uh, it'll bring the house down in both races if there's a, if there's a few people around with a couple of laps to go. Yeah. And I've, I've seen when they've hosted, uh, Zatapak out at Box Hill once before when there was, um, the, the, the changeover from Olympic Park to Lakeside and, and it was a really, really good night with a, with a big kick, kick down that night. So, um, yeah, look, anything's possible. Um, I think, you know, everyone talks about fast tracks and all the rest of it, but if you rock up fit, you'll run fast. That's yeah. just all it comes down to. So, um, you know, the, the track's not a, not a big issue for me. So let, let's, let's give them all a big go and, uh, and get behind them and, and know that this is, this is a, a race that's going to help selection for, for Tokyo. So we want our best Aussies over there and hopefully they, they come, 
come to the fore this weekend. Yeah, awesome. It's going to be good. Actually, I'm being inspired because I reckon Brendan Woodman won the uh, under-23,000 metre De Costello Championship when it was there about 15 years ago as well. So use that as your inspiration, yep. uh, athletes, as you're getting out on the track this weekend. Bro, thank yes. you so much for stopping by. That was good. Hey, next time we'll do it face-to-face again because uh, as pretty as you are on this camera, you're prettier in real life. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I don't have a voice for radio. I don't have a face for TV. I just <laughs> blend nicely into the background. It's good. <laughs> That's coaching. Uh, awesome, man. Thanks so much. No worries, Tyson. Thanks, right. mate. Catch Bye. you soon.